doing in our youth and for what you want to continue to do. God, we pray that it would be led by your spirit, that all that's done with these kids would help them to grow closer to you, to fall more in love with you. Lord, for these leaders and the others who weren't here this morning, I just pray that you'll anoint them in a special way to minister to these kids. And I pray that you'll help us to remember to hold them up in prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now it's time to turn to Galatians chapter 1. For those of you that aren't around much, uh, on Wednesday nights we have a Bible study at 7 o'clock where we go through the Bible. And we've made it from Genesis all the way through, uh, two-thirds of the way through the book of Psalms now. And so we'll be picking up on that on Wednesday night. But on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Galatians. It's just a book that the more I read it and the more I study it, the more impressed I am with how important it is and why so many great men of, of the faith and women of the faith in the past have cited this as being one of their favorite books. I'll back, give you a little bit of background in case you haven't been here the last several weeks. Um, the churches in Galatia, this is one of the only letters that Paul wrote that's addressed to a group of churches instead of just to one church. And Paul had probably started most of these churches. They were up in what's we call East, or what we call Asia Minor or in the middle of Asia Minor, what's the nation of Turkey today is where these people were. If you follow up the coast of the Mediterranean past Israel and Lebanon and Syria, up above there in that little area of land that kind of juts out, that's called Asia Minor or Turkey. It's just across from Greece. And Paul spent a lot of time there starting these churches, but as he went and shared the gospel with them, now he was hearing back from the churches in Galatia, which he visited on his first missionary journey and his second missionary journey. And he was hearing that some people had come in, and they were kind of discrediting Paul. But that wasn't what was bothering him. What was bothering him is that the way they discredited Paul is by saying, oh, the gospel that Paul preached was gospel light. It wasn't the whole story. He gave you part of the deal. But the truth is, you not only have to accept the gospel, but you also have to obey the law. Here are the rules that we want you to follow. You need to step in line and do what we're telling you to do. Well, Paul knew all about the law. He had been, by his own account in Philippians 3, blameless as far as the law was concerned. But Paul was really upset because Paul learned that the good news was you don't have to do that. You don't have to live that way. The law was given so we would realize what schmucks we are. And so we would understand that we can't possibly follow the rules. And he said, hey, the gospel is something that is a very simple thing. It's as we saw in the beginning of this chapter, Jesus Christ died for our sins. He rose again on the third day. He lives to make intercession for us. He took our sins upon himself. And he says, that gospel, if you add something to it, it's not good news at all. It becomes bad news. If you take something away from it, it's not good news any longer. It's bad news. And he pronounced a curse, literally in the Greek, anathema. He said, if anybody, even if I tell you something different than this, may I be accursed. If an angel from heaven comes and tells you something different than this, may he be accursed. If anyone says this, I pronounce an anathema on you. Do not water down or do not add to or take away from the truth of the gospel. 
The gospel tells me that I can be right with God because of what he did for me. It tells me that unlike every religion, it's not what I do to get to God. It's what he has done to get to me. And that is good news indeed because I don't care what kind of simple rules you come up with. You'll discover, even as the children of Israel did, you can't even keep your own rules. You can't even live by your own standards. And coming into that picture is this great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That I can't do anything to make him love me more. And I can't do anything to make him love me less. That it's all about what he did on the cross. As he hung on the cross there and he said, it is finished. Tetelestai in the Greek, which is sometimes translated paid in full. He put a stamp on us and said, I did it for you. Your sins were on me on the cross of Calvary. And so as he's driving this home, he now, and as we saw last week, he begins to share his own testimony. He had already said, this isn't something that came from people. This isn't something that's about people. In fact, this isn't even something that's according to people. Like C.S. Lewis said, man couldn't even make up something this good. This isn't, this isn't the way people do things. It completely interrupts the order of how people would do it. It doesn't appear to be something that was constructed by people. And he goes on to illustrate that by saying, look at me. Before I got saved, I was so zealous for the law that I was persecuting the church. I was on my way to Damascus with papers in my hand to go capture people and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial for heresy. And they were in trouble. And here I had worked all my life to get where I was today. And as he, as he says there, you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, verse 13. I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and I tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. But when it pleased God, he said, where I was, there's no way in the world that I would have made up the gospel, because I had everything to benefit, and I still have everything to benefit if what these Judaizers is saying is true, because if it's true that Jesus died for you and forgives your sins, but you need to keep the law, I'm at the top of the heap. I'm the guy, and he goes, despite the unlikeliness that I would ever say, hey, the law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You just need to accept what he has done for you. And why would I say that? I'm more holy than these guys are. We looked back over in Philippians chapter 3 where he said, everything that I was, tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of the first king of Israel, the other Saul, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, concerning the law blameless, all of that I counted it as dung compared to this knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I count everything as loss. I forget what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the mark for the prize of the upward calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He's gone, look, I gave that up. I put it aside. Don't bring it back and don't add it on. And so, again, emphasizing this truth. Now, in that process, and last week we looked at where he, he understood this glorious truth, that in the midst of all that, in verse 15, when it pleased God... This was just something God wanted to do. Who separated me from my mother's womb. And that's kind of a play on words. Aphorizo, the, the Greek word there for separated, is the same word that 
where we get the name Pharisee from. The Pharisees were those who separated themselves. Don't get close to me. Don't touch anyone. Don't step across this line. They drew, the word means to draw a mark around or a border. But he said, you know what? It's better than me drawing a border to separate myself. God separated me. And we said last week, God looked from before you were born. Because he said from my mother's womb, Ephesians, Paul takes it back to before the foundation of the earth. He said, God saw me and drew a line around me and chose me. And if you're a child of God today, you can know that's the case for you. God, because it pleased him, not because you pleased him, but because he just wanted to, he reached out and he picked you. He called you and he drew a circle around you. And so he says, he separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace it was only grace. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast there in Ephesians 2. And so he says, here's what happened. And then he goes on, and we looked at the beginning of verse 16, because the end of what God was doing when he separated him was to reveal his son in him, or concerning me in my case. And so God wanted to reflect the truth of who he was in Paul, and that's why he picked him. And that's why he called them, and that's why he gave them this direction. But he goes on and describes a little bit more of the call, as he says in verse 16, to reveal his son in me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's kind of crazy when you think about it. Why would you get the most Jewish Jew there was and go, what I want you to do is go to the Gentiles? We'll talk about that a little later. But he said, not only that, I didn't immediately confer with flesh and blood. I didn't just, you know, right away go, okay, guys, what should I do? Get the church together and figure out what we do with my skills. But he says, beyond that, I didn't even go up to Jerusalem. Now, that might convince you because Jerusalem's south of where he was in Damascus up there in Syria, but it was always up to Jerusalem, ascending and so that's always the way they described it. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia. Saudi Arabia at the time extended all the way up to Syria. Every, practically everything that today is like Jordan as well as Saudi Arabia and, and all the way up through Iran and Iraq even was all Arabia. So he said, I went there and I returned again to Damascus in Syria. And then after three years total... The time that he got saved in Damascus to where he went to Arabia, came back to Damascus, he ended up having to run away. They lowered him down in a basket. And so all of that composed three years. I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter. The word there for see, hysteroo, is to, it's the same word from which we get hysterectomy. No, 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 really history. And it's the idea of going and investigating and checking it out. And so he said, I did that with Peter for 15 days. As I was saying this morning, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall listening to Paul who was receiving all this stuff from the Lord. Peter who had all this personal experience from the Lord and as they're comparing notes and talking, oh man, that would have been something. The, later on in chapter two, we'll see he calls Peter the apostle to the Jews and him the apostle to the Gentiles. These two guys getting together for a couple weeks would be wild. But I saw none of the other apostles except James. That's the James who wrote the book of James, Jesus' brother who probably didn't get saved until the resurrection. Uh, now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I'm not lying. He goes, look, I'm not messing around here. This is the truth. 
Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria, which was, again, up there in Asia Minor, probably referring to the time he spent in Antioch, which was a city in Syria. And I went to Cilicia. In Cilicia, we know he went to Tarsus, which was his hometown. So I went these places, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, that is the southern part of Israel where Jerusalem was, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only... He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. So here's what happened basically. And to put the whole story together, you'd have to go read, and I'd encourage you for extra credit, go read Acts chapter 9 where we see the first account of Saul's conversion when he became Paul. Remember in Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned and Paul was there, Saul at the time was there kind of overseeing the process and then you read through find out he was persecuting Christians in chapter 8 and in chapter 9 his Damascus road experience whereas he was heading on his way to Syria to get more people to to persecute the Lord appeared to him knocked him off his donkey saw this light he was blinded ends up going into Damascus and Ananias the Lord came to Ananias and said I've got a guy that I've picked out to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and I've told him that, and you need to go and pray for him. And so he did. He, Paul was filled with the Spirit, immediately began to go out and preach. It says in Acts chapter 9 that he went into the synagogues right away. Now, he was called to the Gentiles, but the first thing he went to was the thing he knew best. So he went there and he began to argue with them, persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah. All he needed was to see Jesus and to hear his voice, and he began to put two and two together. But after a short time there, probably, he went out to Arabia. And his point in bringing it up is, I I didn't get trained by anyone. I didn't cash in on the education I had in order to find the best and the brightest of New Testament theology. I went out into Arabia and spent time with the Lord. And what happened out there, I don't know. I don't want to make too much of it, as some people have, emphasizing that he had a BD degree, the back of the desert degree. It is interesting that Moses and so many others, it seems like God calls them to get away before he really shoots them out into the ministry. But at any rate, he was there, and certainly we know that God gave him a lot of stuff personally. Over in 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking about communion, and the best passage that we have regarding the Lord's Supper, he starts it out by saying, I received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you. So Paul somehow from God received instructions on communion just personally and directly and and then shared those with the churches. But God was communicating his message to Paul and, and through him and again, the emphasis through this passage is, as, as he's been saying in this whole chapter, I did not get this from people. Now, a few things to note. First of all, when God marked him off, separated him, put a boundary around him, called him, he didn't just call him to be saved. Oh, that was a part of it, but that was just the start. God knew before Paul was born that he wanted to use him to bring the gospel to Gentiles. These people that he was writing to in these Galatian churches were Gentiles who came over from the area of France probably. They were Gauls and had migrated here to the outside limit of the Roman Empire. They were Gentiles. When God called Paul, he called him to minister to Gentiles. Now, again, 
he is the most unlikely person to do that. The first thing I would do if I met someone who's a brand new Christian and they are the Hebrew of the Hebrews, they know the Bible inside and out, they've memorized the Old Testament, and they, hey, I would think we need to start a Jewish fellowship. We need to start a Christian synagogue, help other Jews learn how to become completed Jews. It's kind of funny that God didn't do that. In fact, Paul, as he reached out to the Jews there in Damascus, he just ended up having to bail. They got madder and madder at him because God had a purpose in mind for his life, and that purpose was to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Who would have thunk it? I wouldn't have dreamed it up. I, I wouldn't think that. But, you know, I'm convinced that so often people never find out what God wants to do through them, what their calling really is, because we always think that it would be something perfectly natural. We always think, hey, ask a bunch of people, take a little gifted test, and find out what you're supposed to do. But, hey, if you're a mechanic, I bet you're supposed to start witnessing to mechanics. Now, that's a place to start. But God may want to do something through you radically different. And to take the Hebrew of the Hebrews and call him to go to the Gentiles seemed goofy. In the same way that even to call Peter to be the apostle to the Jews, as it says in chapter 2, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, seems crazy. Peter was a rugged fisherman, not well-learned, certainly, just a, a tough guy who had a big mouth. And you'd think, man, a guy like that would probably, you'd think he'd do well with Gentiles. It's kind of like, hey, if you wanted to send somebody as an apostle to New York City, you would want someone who's rude and obnoxious. <laughs> because you got to connect with these East Coast people. You know, if you're, if you're going to send an apostle to San Francisco, well. <laughs> but see, God so often does things so differently, so radically different than that. And God loves to use you in an unexpected, surprising way. And if you don't listen to him, you may miss what God is calling you to do. <clears throat> Before I was a Christian, I loved to argue with people. And I had back, you know, when I was younger, my mind was pretty quick. I had a good memory, and I loved learning and just soaking up anything that I could read. And it was, when I became a Christian... I really got dangerous because I love to argue with people. And I really believed for a period of time that God wanted to call me to be a missionary to people that needed arguing. So that meant apologetics. You know, I, even when I was a kid, even before I really devoted my life to the Lord, I had enough information that I'd get excited. Here come the guys on the 10 speeds down the street. It's like, oh, come to my house, come to my house. And, you know, it was cool because they'd, you know, if somebody would come up and they would say, you know, have you ever heard of the uh, um, Watchtower Society? And, and I'd go, well, yeah, I have actually. And, and, and they say, well, have you ever received it? Have you ever become a member of the Jehovah's Witnesses? And I'd go, no, I have some reasons why not. And this is when I was like 10, 11 years old. And I had right behind the door my little watchtower version of the Greek New Testament. And I could open it up with them. And they saw that cover and they're like, uh-oh. And I could turn them in circles. I, I, I took great pride when I'd see them pedaling off on their bicycles, tears streaming down their face. <laughs> so 
I love, you know, give me a Mormon, give me a Jehovah's Witness, give me a Catholic, shoot, give me a Democrat. And I would just... <laughs> and so I figured, boy, you know, God's pretty blessed to get somebody as sharp as I am. Someone who has that gift of making people who disagree with you cry. And it's like, I bet God's going to do great things through me. You know what's the amazing irony of that? I never, though I won a lot of arguments, I realized more and more how fruitless it was. Now, for me, what that turned into is, now what do I do? I don't want to spend my life arguing with people. I've given up on that. Before I became a Christian, I was planning on being an attorney. No offense to any of you attorneys, but uh, I don't want to argue with you after church. But (laughs) it's like, now I go, what am I supposed to do? And it's only through doing the best I could at what I had before me that God began to lead me to discover other ways that he could use me other than those ways which were predictable. And for me, that meant one of the strangest things. You know, I I remember as a kid, I wouldn't cry. I wouldn't show weakness. Even after I became a Christian, I, I took pride in being really solid and staid and mature. And you know, I wouldn't get emotional But you know, it's because even when I made somebody cry when I was witnessing to them, it didn't move me at all. I thought, well, good. I hope they get to thinking about it, you know. (laughs) Hope I put some of the fear of God into them. But the amazing thing that happened to me later as I grew and as I continued to try to follow the Lord, I found out that the most powerful thing God ever did through me sometimes was just to cry. I had, I'd, I'd go years without crying. Now I'm like... I cry at the drop of a hat. It's not, I can't work it up, otherwise I could make a living in Hollywood or something, but, or as a Pentecostal. But, I, <laughs> but it's like I've been with people who are hurting, and all of a sudden I hurt so much for them that I can't stop crying. And sometimes they say later, you don't know how much it did for me that you didn't say anything, you just sat there and cried. And I think, what a stupid thing to use. Especially for somebody who has all the answers, I need to give you answers. I don't need to cry with anybody. And yet, God is like that. And I want to personalize it for you. There is something that God has called each and every one of you to do and to be for him. There's a ministry that he called you to. I'm glad that you're happy that we found out last week that God has drawn a circle around you and separated you and called you. But when he does, it comes with a plan. It comes with a a goal, with objectives. It comes with a calling that God says, I have the perfect place for you to fit in the body. The perfect thing for you to do. But he doesn't say, so go find out what it is. He goes, listen to me and you'll figure it out. It may be a little awkward right now. You do the best you can with where you are, but I, as God, am in the business of doing miracles, and someday I am going to use you in a shocking way, in a way that you would never anticipate or expect. And it won't be by using all of the natural gifts and talents that you have. The truth is, you find out all of your talents, and you try to use them for God, and you'll probably just make other people cry. You'll probably just misuse That which has designed for a purpose, but you don't know. You go, well, you know, I have a great influence over people, so I think what I need to do is get as many people as I can to follow me. That's not the way it works. God, you know, Paul said, 
God didn't choose many wise men or many nobles, but he's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Now you go, well, Paul said that, but come on, he was a wise guy. He had that education, went to school with Gamaliel, who was just, you know, the best possible education you could get in Jerusalem. Gamaliel, the grandson of the great Hillel, the most respected rabbi of all. And it's like, yeah, that'll be great. But what does God do? He sends him to people that couldn't care less that he's the Hebrew of the Hebrews. He sent him to a bunch of people who knew nothing about Jewishness at all. And he goes, I'm going to use you. I had a friend, one of my professors, who was a church history professor part-time over at Talbot Seminary. And he was an amazing church history teacher. He loved history. The guy was brilliant. He was just, it was incredible. And every year, by the way, his day job was being a history professor at a secular university over at Cal State Fullerton. And every year, the school begged him to come and be a full-time seminary professor because his classes were some of the best I ever took. But this guy, Mr. Jomer, he was a, he was a man who had a ministry at the secular university whereby he was loved and appreciated there even though he didn't fit in at all. And if you went over to Cal State Fullerton and tried to get an appointment with him, you had to wait weeks. And you'd go over there. I went over to his office one time and, and there was a line of people outside his office to see him. He was a guy who had been sick most of his life. He was very skinny, a tiny little guy. There was absolutely nothing intimidating about him. The amazing thing was, he had a ministry of football players at Cal State Fullerton. He had a good team at the time. And these big, huge guys would be in this little guy's office just sobbing and pouring their hearts out to him. You know, I would think, well, I can't minister to football players. I don't, I'm not studly enough. You know, I need to get on roids and really bulk up if I'm going to have that ministry. But the truth is, no, God doesn't choose a bunch of people who are qualified. He needs to find something that you can't possibly do without him, and then he'll use you doing it. He's called you and he's called me to do the impossible, to do crazy stuff. And if, as somebody has said, I can't remember who said it, but, but I love the sentiment. They said, if every week you are not trying to do something that is doomed to failure unless God shows up, then you're not stretching yourself enough. That's a paraphrase. The idea is God wants us to function outside sometimes of our natural capabilities, and then he'll use the total package. But Paul called to the Gentiles. He hated Gentiles. As all good Orthodox Jews, he would wake up every morning and thank God that I wasn't born a woman or a Gentile. And then God goes, hey, guess what? Going to the Gentiles. Seems crazy, but that's God's calling. And if we don't get with him and receive from him what he wants to do in our lives, we run the risk of being perfectly qualified to minister to Jews when God has said, I really wanted you to get the Gentiles. And sometimes how this happens is you start doing something that you think you're good at, and then there's a little detour along the way, and God goes, by the way, how about over here? How about these guys? And so as Paul is laying it out for him, he's saying, God, call me to that. God told him from the beginning, but Paul started teaching in synagogues because that's what he knew. But eventually, God called him to do something that was opposite of what he had planned, than what anyone would have planned. Please, if you think God is calling you in a particular direction, 
Don't let anyone talk you out of it by telling you there are other people more qualified than you. I, there's, there's nothing that's more destructive than to decide I can't do something because I don't have the skills or I need to do it. Now, not everyone's called to be up on stage and be a rock star. I don't know that anyone is, frankly. But if, if you feel, you know, I know God's called me to be a musician and so put me on the stage and let me play guitar and sing and you can't play guitar and you can't sing, you know, it doesn't mean God hasn't called you to do that. It means you need to get out in the desert and practice. Don't do it next door to me. But <laughs> no, who knows what God would do? Most of what we want to do turns out to be not what we're supposed to do. But what I want from the bottom of my heart is by the end of my life to look back and say, for this I was born, for this came I into the world, I'm doing exactly what God called me to do. And I couldn't see it in the beginning and I tried all these other things, but God so amazingly and graciously led me to where I I got to the point where I'm going, now I figured it out somewhat. Now I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And so Paul, being called by God for this particular ministry, it's something that he wanted to share with them, and it's something that we can learn from as well. But really, the main point of what he's saying here is something a bit different. Because consistent with, back in verse 1 of Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle, in parentheses, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. And as he goes on to say, and we look, it's according to the will of God, and, and he goes down in the, Verse 10, I, I don't persuade uh, men or God. Do I seek to please men? If I still please men, I wouldn't be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. It's not even something man would make up. It's too crazy. Apart from God doing it, it just wouldn't have happened. And so now as he flows through, but now what he's saying is, hey, I didn't consult with flesh and blood. People didn't turn me on to this new religion. That was the accusation, that Paul had been influenced by others in some way, and that he was in turn influencing others. The truth is, what he shared with them, the basic truth of the gospel, a lot of it he was certainly influenced by others, but in its foundational sense as terms what the gospel is, it came straight from God. He said, it didn't come through flesh and blood. Remember when when Jesus was asking the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they were all going, well, you know, some people say you're this, some people say you're that. And Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter spoke up, as he usually would, and he said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're God's Son. And Jesus said to him, Simon, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. That was something that you received from God. And so here Paul is saying, Flesh and blood didn't give me this. And then he goes to great lengths as he discussed when he went from Antioch to Tarsus. He finally went down to Jerusalem. At first, we learn in, over in Acts that when he went to Jerusalem, they didn't want anything to do with him because he was the guy who was persecuting Christians, and so they figured he was a double agent. Finally, Barnabas, the son of Constellation, came along and introduced him to some people. And obviously, he got to spend a couple weeks with Peter. Got to meet James, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem at the time. But basically what he's saying, with all of that, what I'm teaching you didn't come from any of these guys. They didn't tell me what to say. We didn't cook this up together. One of the reasons why we have four Gospels is, you know, people often go, 
oh, the Gospels are contradictory. The story's told one way here, another way here, another way here, and we go, oh, no, they can't be true. If they were consistent, you'd only need one Gospel. But the reason there are four Gospels, among other things, there are different people, different audiences, different perspective. I believe that they can be harmonized and all fit together, but it's tough to. And that would worry me if I didn't know the fact that when police are interrogating witnesses to crimes, they look for common elements in which these people are copying each other. Because if two people tell the exact same story in the same way, they're lying. They got together and they fixed their testimony to make it consistent. I love that in the case of the gospel accounts and even in the case of this account in Galatians 1 compared to over in Acts 9 and Acts 26, I love the fact that there are differences and nuances because this is really, it's not a collaboration. I think some people think that in the beginning, you know, these disciples all got together, Paul got in on it, and they made up a religion. But Paul was trying to stress to the Galatians, it didn't happen that way at all. We didn't do this. In fact, they all had very different perspectives. The glorious thing is, as they each received from God the truth that God had for them, when they got together, they found out it's amazing how much we have in common. I love it when I run into someone and they say, you know what God's been showing me? And they tell me something and I'm like, wow, because God's been showing me the same thing. That's fellowship. That's great. Now, I run into people all the time who tell me what God's telling them, and it's something different than I think. But I have to suspend judgment and go, well, hmm, that's interesting. That's another perspective. Later, as we look into chapter 2, as we get into the next couple of weeks, we will see how they dealt with those differences, because differences do occur, and and, uh, Paul's experience helps us a lot in this regard. But the point is, for him... His calling and his ministry and his introduction of the gospel was something that was very personal. And if it isn't for us, something's wrong. It's extremely dangerous to just believe what someone tells you, to just glom onto some group or some person or some perspective and then decide that that's going to dictate the way I read the Bible. The reason that we all have the Bible is because this intimate book has the ability to divide between soul and spirit and even the thoughts and intents of our heart. God wants to describe it to us in a personal way by His Holy Spirit. And if all you get of God is what I give you, you have leftovers. You have secondhand stuff. I have people, you know, come up to me and go, "Uh, Dave, what do we believe about soul sleep? Or what do we believe about the rapture? Or what do we believe about this doctrine or that teaching? And I always go, I don't know what we believe. I mean, are you asking me what I believe, or are you expecting me to tell you what to believe? And I am not interested in saying, you know what? I can tell you what the truth is. I've put in all these years, and I've figured it out, and so just let me dole it out to you, and you'll have a good perspective. No. I mean, it's fine. We can talk about it, but until you've read enough to decide what you believe just by reading the Scriptures... I don't really want to give you the short version. I don't really want to give you the Reader's Digest edition of what God says. I'd like you and I would challenge you in some of these areas. Why not just go through and read the Bible and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to minister to you? That's what Paul did, and you know, you can do that too. It's something that God wants you to do, in fact. You need to find your own personal relationship with Him because He called you personally. He separated you. He pulled you aside.
and he is able to speak to you. And if all you do is listen to other people, then you're, getting, you're running the risk of following another gospel and taking on what Paul said that these Judaizers had taken on. You're preaching another gospel, and as a result, you are anathema. You're cursed. Hey, and he says, if an angel tells you, if I tell you, if anyone tells you something different than this, then let us be accursed. See, God wants each of us to connect with him personally. His Holy Spirit lives inside you if you are his child. If anybody doesn't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even his. And the reason he's there is so that he can teach you and so that he can lead and guide you. Now, there are many places within the church and within the world where when you talk about a personal relationship with God, they get really upset or they get really nervous. Because the concept is, hey, if everyone's just an individual, isn't that that rugged, American, Wild West mentality that everybody's on his own? Hey, wait, we're a church, we're a part of... No. It has to be personal. Now, you'd say, but then you're going to have all kinds of crazy teachings. Not really. I don't believe that any crazy teachings are out there just because somebody read the word for themselves and sought the Lord and, and asked the Holy Spirit to reveal the truth, and then they read it, and they came up with some kooky teaching that exploded all over the world. I don't believe that at all. In fact, I trust the Holy Spirit enough that I will tell people, you go read the Bible for yourself, and you ask God to speak to you, and he'll speak to you. Now you go, but well, then how do you account for all these weird ideas? Those weird ideas come because somebody else follows someone that they shouldn't be following. You know, do I ever get a kooky idea when I read the scriptures? Yes, I do. Some of them I probably teach to you, not intentionally. But the problem isn't me coming up with a goofy idea. I'm flawed. I know that I make mistakes. It's why I talk to people. Then once I have an idea, I bounce it off some people, and I read other books and things, and I try to hold my view up to the light of criticism. But ultimately, if I get a goofy idea, and as long as nobody follows me, then we're fine. As long as you each have a personal relationship with God, then I'm going to say something crazy, and you're going to just laugh at it. Are you going to go, that's off the wall or whatever? On the other hand, if I set up a structure that says, you need to fall into line with what I teach. I am the official teaching here at Pacific Hills, and I don't want you to believe anything different than what I say. Now we've got a problem. Because now that kookiness that I have becomes a religion. It becomes something that now I'm influencing other people toward this. The danger of that man-made religion. Everything that's wrong with religion today is wrong because people followed other people. And they stop hearing from the Lord for themselves. And they stop following Him personally. And so now the Holy Spirit isn't working. It's like you just come in and you go, okay, tell me what to believe. Okay, here's what we believe. That's dangerous. Much more dangerous than giving people the freedom of thinking for themselves or of hearing from God on a personal level. You know, it reminds me of this whole um, ADD, ADHD thing. Now, I'm not radically, you know, you're, some of you are getting upset because you've got kids on Ritalin. Some of you are going, woohoo, preach it, man. He's going to go against it. I'm not doing either one. I'm not Tom Cruise. I, all I'm saying is, 
Why is it that in our educational system now so many kids can't function in the environment? There's such an emphasis on readiness. We need to get our kids ready for school. You got them cramming for preschool. Well, it's because we've changed a lot about the educational system today, and we've decided that the best thing is to have these huge classes, and we want everyone to fall into line. And if, if the class feels like the teacher wants things to be quiet, and this kid feels like saying something, let's dope him up. Make him conform. Let's fall into line. Again, I, there are some kids who have legitimate needs, and I'm not a doctor, and I'm certainly not up here to take shots at anyone. The point is, the reason why for so many kids they have to be medicated is because they don't fit the mold. Now, to me, isn't that a good thing sometimes? Oh, not if you're a teacher. You just want everybody to sit there and do what you tell them to do. And the truth is, as a pastor, if I'm being selfish, I wish everyone believed everything I said. And if they became a little concerned about something and I gave them an explanation, they fall into line. Truth is, selfishly, if anyone disagrees with me, they leave, hey, great for me. The problem is, that's not the way God does things, ever. And what we do is, by doing that, is we eliminate people who have the greatest amount of individualism, the greatest amount of creative thought, the greatest amount of enthusiasm, and everybody's just sitting here zoned out, like all those IBM executives on that old Apple commercial in 1984 which I assume you've seen just because of the Super Bowl. I know most of you aren't old enough to see that. But that's what happens. And, and you see it happen in churches. See it happen with people. Don't think for yourself. To me, as much as, hey, if my child was having a hard time sitting still, I'd be concerned about it. But the truth is, I would be way more concerned if my child just does everything that they are told. That's not God's way of child rearing. Just mold them and shape them and form them and force them and intimidate them and make them toe the line. Because those kind of people, kids who grow up just being overly compliant, so often the day is going to come when they will comply with the next person who's their authority figure. And you'll find that in the process, they're more Hitler's youth. Think of what happened in Germany with all the good little boys and girls who were told these horrible things and they just put up their hand and they marked in lockstep and they did what they were told. Is that really what you want your kids to be? Wouldn't you rather have somebody that had a little bit of orneriness about them? Boys acting like boys? You know, uh, kids who didn't always like to sit still, who wanted to color outside the lines. Is that so bad? I'll tell you, the greatest potential for greatness in this world is from those kids. And don't forget it. And the greatest danger that faces this world is people who just do what they are told. People who just conform to whatever the standard is. Because the truth is, and my seminary professor told me years ago, Dr. Feinberg, he said, he said, you know what? In the beginning, there were two people. And they took a vote. And it was unanimous. And they were both wrong. And the majority has been wrong ever since. Hey, if we get to the point, point where we conform so much that, that we won't question things, we're dead. We're dead as we stand. 
And God doesn't want us to be like that. And his insurance to make us not like that is he picks a bunch of different people and he deals differently with each of us and he makes one person think that this makes sense. He makes another person think this makes sense and they talk together and go, maybe we're both right, maybe we're both wrong, maybe it's something else, I don't know, but boy, is this healthy to mix it up a bit because God wants individuals who will relate to him personally. If you don't understand this, if you want to see what happens, sometime visit a large religious organization that has a, a great number of authority layers of, of bureaucracy. And you'll see something that's amazing. You'll see that the people who are under the leader look a lot like the leader in a lot of ways and have some of the same mannerisms and speech patterns. And as it trickles down, you start seeing, wow, these people are clones. I've seen this, uh, if you hang around the Billy Graham organization, great organization, Billy Graham's a great man. I respect him highly. But it's funny. You'll see people who are his evangelists, and some of them, even if they've, you know, never, it, no matter where they come from, they can be from Mexico, and they talk with that Billy Graham accent. You know, and their hair kind of flips up and back a little bit, and they take their Bible and fold it backwards and tuck it under their arm. And it's like, ah, I'll do that. I remember years ago going to some seminar called uh, Basic Youth Conflicts with a man named Bill Gothard. And it was funny. It was a great people-watching place because you could tell who was important there. They dressed like Bill. They walked like Bill. They talked like Bill. It was like, wow. I imagine the same thing happens up at Microsoft, speaking of Bill. But... Here's, you go, hey, who better to follow than Billy Graham? Who better to follow than somebody else? No, God's plan is a lot better. And the reason that we get in trouble when we follow the leader other than our one leader, which is God, the reason we get in so much trouble, and one of my college professors, Dr. Bohr, pointed this out to me one time. He said, you look at people who imitate other people, and he said they will almost invariably copy the worst thing about that person. And I thought, interesting. And you, when you think about it, when somebody draws a political cartoon, there's a lot of trouble in the world right now over those cartoons over in Denmark. But when you draw a caricature of someone, and we even use that word caricature in this way, the idea is you take someone's likeness and you exaggerate their flaws. If they have big ears... They get huge Dumbo ears. If they have a crooked nose, it's a nose that turns a 90-degree turn. And that's how you draw a cartoon. And unwittingly and unintentionally and unknowingly, here's what happens. When you try to follow a person, you won't notice what it is that God really uses in them. You oversee that and you look at the quirks and the idiosyncrasies. And you follow them in ways that your gestures are like theirs and your speech patterns are like theirs. Have you ever noticed that, I don't know if you do this, this may just be craziness on my part, but if I'm talking to someone who has a particular speech impediment, maybe they stutter or something like that, I find myself as I'm talking to them starting to stutter. It's, and, oh, I'd feel terrible if they thought I was doing it just to accommodate them. But it just kind of happens. And if you copy people you'll end up copying all the wrong things. God has used Billy Graham in a powerful way, but it wasn't because of his accent. It wasn't because of the way he holds his Bible. It wasn't because of his hairdo. It's something else. 
So if you try to copy him, you'll probably copy the very things that stand in the way of him being even more effective. You may be copying his thorn in the flesh, as when Paul talked about there in 2 Corinthians, he had a thorn in the flesh. So that's what you'll copy. The thing that God gave them to maybe keep them humble. That's really funny. Big leaders of big organizations often, they have some glaring problem and weakness with the way they run the organization. And we sometimes think, wow, I wonder what God could do if they didn't have that weakness. The truth is, maybe God allowed them to have that weakness because that's the thing that should cause you to go, well, I'm sure not going to follow him. He talks a good line, but man, his family's a mess, so I better look somewhere else. I better follow God. When we start to follow people, we're just walking down the road of destruction, walking away from what you think is possible, walking away from what you believe God has even called you to because that brainwashing that goes on that causes your image of what you believe God can do to just shrink. And I guess all I can do is be a toady for this person and hope maybe one day I'll work myself up to this. No, as Paul makes it clear here, don't follow me. I didn't follow anyone else. I got with God. Oh, I appreciate the fellowship with the other guys, and it was nice, but the bottom line is, what I received, I received from the Lord. Again, as he said, I received of the Lord that which I'm giving to you. And that's what God wants to do for you too, and for me. He has called you from before you were born, and he has a blueprint. He has a plan for your life. And I don't know if he's going to call you to this country or this cultural group or this theological persuasion. or I don't know what he's calling you to do. I don't know who your Gentiles are. But make sure that you understand God can do whatever he wants in the most unlikely, miraculous way, but he'll never do it if you're following people. He needs you to follow him. He needs you to hear from him. Now, I know, you know, I talk like this a lot of times, and, you know, sometimes it comes across as weakness, as some kind of phony humility or something. I'm I'm not trying to look like anything myself, but I have to answer for you. If you hear my teaching, I need to answer to the Lord someday, and I just really don't want you to use me as your excuse for messing your life up or for missing what God wants to do in your life. And so if you're praying about, you know, I'm thinking, you know, you're some 80-pound guy and you're coming up to me and go, you know, I've never ridden a motorcycle before, but I think God's calling me to minister to the hell's angels. I might go, dude, I don't know. But don't let that discourage you. Maybe God is calling you to get beat up by the hell's angels. But (laughs) it shouldn't matter what I think. It doesn't. Hey, and I love to share with people who have come to certain conclusions. Sometimes I think their conclusions are crazy. And often parents will have a kid come and talk to me to have me talk them out of some big idea they have that seems totally unrealistic. But you know what? I'm not going to talk anybody out of anything. I don't want to. You hear from God. You get close to him. Draw close to him. Allow his spirit to minister to you. And what I will say to you, no matter how crazy your idea is, I'm going to say, if you think God is calling you to do it, then you do it. You go for it. And I tell parents about their kids, look, do you want to tell your kid that no matter what God tells them, they need to do what you say? That's a huge problem. I'd rather have my kid completely mess his life up for a while 
and do it because he really felt God was calling him to do it than to have me make all his decisions for him. And then when I'm out of the way, he's not even going to be close to being even what I am because there he did. He took on all my weaknesses and he missed those seek Whatever it is that God uses in me, you probably don't notice it. I probably don't notice it. If I could say, well, well, you know, what's the secret to what God does in your life? I have no idea. If I was God, I just know I wouldn't pick someone like me at all. But the truth is, he manages to work. And it just may be that because I'm a, a rude, obnoxious person, that's why God is using me. I don't know. But don't copy that. You don't have to be that way. There's really only room for one really rude, obnoxious person, and everybody else needs to be nice. So do that. But hear from God. Go to God and say, God, who am I the apostle to? Who am I the sent one to? What do you want me to do with my life? How do you want me to act? What do you want me to believe? And read this book. Pour the word of God into your life. And don't ask everyone what we're believing but look at it and go, what does it say? At times of your life, you may end up having a persuasion one way and later you're reading it again and you change and, you know, that's fine. It's okay. You don't have to have all the answers. But you have to, you absolutely have to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that as we go through the book of Galatians. The importance of walking in the Spirit. Having begun in the Spirit, are you going to be made perfect in the flesh? We've got to start here or nothing else matters. Don't be a disciple of me. Don't be a disciple of anyone else. Be a disciple of Jesus Christ. His Spirit lives inside you. He said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Believe that. And listen carefully and be willing to do something crazy in order to see if that's what he has called you to do. Don't let anybody talk you out of anything. You listen to God. You hear from him. Finally, oh boy, I went so late. I'm sorry. I really thought I was going to cut 20 minutes off the message in second service, but add a bunch of other stuff. Verse 24, they glorified God in me. They heard about him and they were like, hey, great. This guy, we don't even know him. And he, He's preaching the truth. How did he get that? Where did that come from? How did that happen? But what was their reaction? Was it to like, we need to have him come and be a guest speaker? We need to get his books and... No. They saw what he did and they glorified God. God was working in me, he said. Jesus was being apocalypsed, revealed in me. But when they saw it, they glorified God. And that's the bottom line. If you know you're getting this, is that you'll see people praising God and respecting God more as a result of what you're doing. It's really enticing to have people lift you up and respect you. There's something in our flesh that needs that kind of affirmation. It helps our self-esteem, but it destroys us spiritually. So if people are glorifying God, we're on the right track people start glorifying people, we're in big trouble. Let's pray. Lord, how grateful we are that you set the example. And God, it's just overwhelming that your truth to us personally doesn't depend on going to the right seminar, having the right books, going to the right church, listening to the right radio teachers or whatever. 
But the God you want to speak to us personally, calling us for special ministry, leading and guiding us in your truth, as then when we get together, we can gloriously celebrate how God independently is doing similar things in each of us with just certain distinctions and differences and and the excitement of the variety that you put within the body of Christ. So God, help us to follow you only. Help us to be your disciples. Not Paul or Paulus or Cephas or anybody else. Just you. And Lord, lead and guide us. It's scary. When we think about that you can speak to everyone individually. And we're afraid because we don't trust your spirit. God, help us to step out in faith and say that we only want to follow you. Deliver us from all the brainwashing that we've endured all our lives. Playing games, making up religion, coming up with new rules that have no basis other than tradition. Lord, help us to walk independently with you and then to enjoy the fellowship that results. We thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.